So let's get into finishing this series this month in the book of Psalms called Psalms for Seasons. Now the seasons that we've been referring to are these kinds of seasons that creep up on us and can kind of cloud our vision, right? It's like a fog, So these seasons are more than just life stage. These seasons are more than emotions. These are the kind of things that can kind of creep up on us like a fog and blurs our vision. So the first week was about when you want to cut and run, basically. When when relationships and community is difficult, when you want to go it alone. And then we look to the Psalms to remind us, to give us a renewed focus and vision when that creeps up on us. Second week, we looked at when you've blown it. Everybody's blown it. The more important thing is what do you do after you blow it? And so we looked at a psalm to kind of remind us and renew our vision. Last week, we looked at a psalm that says when you lose your focus, we are all guilty of losing our focus because we've been distracted. We've been in summers and seasons. We're traveling. We're working. We're this. We're that. But last week, we talked about what about beyond those times when you shift your gaze away from God, away from his way, and you begin to envy others, you begin to compare yourself to others. This is what we looked at last week. So tonight we're looking at a psalm that is Psalm 142, and it's a season that is really, really difficult, dark, and dangerous. And it's a season that many of us have experienced, and it's when you feel deserted and afraid when you feel isolated, when, you, when that fear drives you into these places that seem so difficult to find your way out of. And I will tell you that I triple and double and quadruple checked my spelling of deserted because I kept thinking, is it one S or is it two S? Is. Anyway, what we've seen each week and what I hope we'll see tonight is that the Psalms, even as dark and hard as it gets, there are two reminders that each Psalm shows us. There's 150 Psalms and 150 reminders or more that tell you at least two things. Do you, any of you remember? It's hidden on your handout. The first is that you are not alone. I love the Psalms because they're universal, they lay it all out there, and it reminds you that you're not the first person to feel this way. So hopefully that's an empathetic way of approaching the Psalms that say, you know what, someone else has been there. But the other thing it reminds us, the second thing it reminds us, is that not only are you not alone, but God is not done. Because even when you feel isolated, deserted, like we're going to see tonight, you've got to remember and recognize that God is at work. He's not done with you. And even better, he's not done with this mess of a situation in which you find yourself. So when we talk about tonight feeling deserted and isolated and afraid, these two reminders, hear me, are the most necessary, but they're also the most out of reach. There are people in our church who struggle with clinical depression. There's people in our church that have been through seasons where they're lost and trapped inside of a cave, or as the psalmist will say, a prison, and they can't see the light. They don't know how to find their way out. What do we do when these things creep up on us? Yeah, Adam, that sounds great. You're not alone. I feel alone. Even in a crowd of people, I feel alone. I feel isolated. What do we do with that? Second issue, I feel totally panicked and petrified. Have we ever felt panicked and petrified? We don't know the next step. This guy says, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. What do we do with this? 
And I want to tell you, you can pray for me as you're listening, or if you're too bored to listen, just pray for me instead. I'd appreciate that. Um, because I, 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 I'll be honest with you, I, I've only had fleeting glimpses of this season in my life. And so what I did is I spoke to someone this week that's, that I know has come out the other side and has been honest with some of that struggle, and I said, I am really scared about giving pat answers I don't want to be that pastor just says, hey, buck up and get on and pray and read your Bible and come to church, come to church, and then give to the church and do this and church and church. Because sometimes it's just, it's just there's got to be more. And you'll see in our big thought, our focus statement tonight, we've got to remember that even when we feel alone, God is with us. And we've got to remember that God is our hope even when we're afraid. But you won't believe me until you experience that for yourself. Any pat answer that anyone wants to give you can go in one ear and out the other, but until you actually realize that God is with you in the deep sort of way that you never thought possible, until you realize that there is a hope to renew all things and that will renew your situation, until you experience that at the depth of your being, this is gonna be another one of those sermons that sounds like I just throw a bunch of information out at you. So I hope that you'll give me some grace to just begin a conversation, just to wade into this season and look at the psalmist to remind us that it really is true, you're not alone and God is not done, even when everything within you says, I am alone and God has abandoned me. Because that's the voice that will be screaming louder than me or the people in this community unless we experience that presence and promise that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. And that's why we turn to the Psalms. We turn to the Psalms because there is an undercurrent of hope hidden beneath the darkest seasons that really, really lays it out there, but really, really experiences the presence and power and promises of God. That's where we're at. I hope you'll join us Would you stand if you're willing and able? Let's read together Psalm 142. It's seven verses. It's on your handout. Would you hear the word of God and perhaps hear yourself in this poem? I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it's you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there's no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge and no one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they're too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. You may have a seat. I want you to put on your Bible study caps with me. This psalm is a part of a genre of psalms. Psalms are poetry, they're songs, and just like our songs in modern days, we have genres of music, right? We have rock, we have hip-hop, we have pop, we have any sub-genre. 
beyond that. Same is true with the Psalms. This is a perfect example of what's called a lament psalm. Have you heard of a lament, right? I'm lamenting the fact that I've got to wake up early and take my kid to school because now she's forcing me to get up when it's dark. But I lament it, and I cry out, and I plead my case to my wife, but I see that there's still hope at the end of the tunnel because now I actually have to get up and start my day like a grown adult. What I just did was a little bit of the formula that we see in this genre of lament. Would you look back at the text and find for me, with me, it's not an exact science, but you see at least five elements hidden within these seven verses. The first is, you're always going to see the psalmist crying out. Look at the first two verses and note the crying outness of this psalm. I mean, it's unbelievable. And in fact, in the very beginning of this song, when he says, I cry aloud, that's a really rare word they use to say, I am screaming my guts out. This is some serious crying out. What other words do you see there? I lift up. I pour it out. I tell him my trouble. This is a guy that's spilling his guts. Every lament psalm will have this crying out, which is really powerful because the psalmist realizes that if nobody around him is listening, there's always a God who listens. And I want you to see from the very beginning with this genre of psalms that even centuries and centuries and centuries ago, the God the Israelites knew was not someone who was aloof and uncaring and not listening. Every other God in the ancient Near East was someone to be appeased, they were fickle, they were like that middle school girlfriend that you were kind of on and off again, and they would never believe that they were actually listening until they got their junk together. But the Psalms, you see Psalm after Psalm after Psalm where they're laying their junk out and they actually believe that their God is listening. This is a tremendous step forward in the history of religion because they're actually interacting with the real and living God who actually doesn't just listen but watch, enters in to the darkest and deepest and hardest parts of us. If we had an intuition throughout the Old Testament of the God who is walking with this ragtag group of people, if we had that intuition, now we have no doubt when we look to the New Testament and we see Jesus coming as the naked and vulnerable child of a refugee teenager. This is a God who's familiar and acquainted with people who struggle. Are you with me? The Psalms have that intuition. God actually listens to us, but more than that, he enters into it. So then I'm going to, the second part, lay out my crisis, okay? My friends don't want to hear my crisis. Well, God, you got to listen to my crisis. Do y'all see in the psalm where he lays out his beef? I'm looking at the second half of verse three and four. You with me there? Look, there's nobody here. Look, these people have set a trap for me. They're hunting me down. He lays out the crisis. So then he says, God, I also believe that you can actually do something about it. So then you see in this genre, not just the crying out, not just the crisis, then you see a request for help. Do you see it there in the text? What does he want God to do? First, he wants him to listen. You see that beautiful passage in verse 5. But then he says, listen to me, rescue me, set me free then I can actually talk about it, which is the fourth piece. He says, if you do what I ask you, 
after this request for help, then you see this vow of praise, which is a fancy Bible study way of saying, hey, if you did this for me, I'm going to tell everybody about it because you are awesome and other people need to buy what you're selling. So then you see this vow of praise. And the fifth thing, the final thing you see is a really, really, really significant. And it's an expression of hope. The first two things I told you was there is a crying out and then there is a crisis. Hear me on this. Let me tell you where I live mostly. Something bad happens, the trouble hits, I feel deserted, I feel isolated, I feel afraid. I'm gonna cry out to anybody who's listening. I'm gonna spill my guts and my beef to them, okay? And then I'm gonna tell them my crisis. I'm gonna cry out and then I'm gonna do my crisis. And then that's about it, I stop. But watch, he moves the next step and he says, no, 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 God help me. And then he moves to the further step and he says, and when you help me, I'm gonna tell others about it so that they can hear that you are who you say you are. But then watch the final ultimate, this is what we need to learn tonight from the Psalms. He takes this final fifth step and he says, no, 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 no. It's this expression of trust because he says, I will do this and they will do that and you are this, you are my refuge. He has this expression of hope and trust that God will actually do it. How often do we just stop at, this is my life and it stinks and that's enough. But you follow the movement of every one of these lament psalms and no matter how bad it is in verse one, by the last verse, there's always this confident expectation and expression that God will actually move. And it's this journey that we see with each lament psalm that wait, I am not alone. And wait, God isn't done. And even though my circumstances now look bogus, I believe that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. This is the movement that we see through this psalm. Now, do you see the superscription, those italicized things that were added at the beginning of the psalms? You see that word that says maskel? Mark Sweet thought it was a typo. He's like, maskel? What's a maskel? I said, I don't know. Nobody really knows. It's probably some liturgical term that some genre, right? This is a maskel, right? This is an epic guitar solo of David. Or this is a dope verse from David. You know, it's a maskel. We don't know what it means, but look what it says. When he was where? In the cave, a prayer. I love, love, love this little glimpse we get, right? David was the king who organized and wrote a good chunk of the Psalms. But then they get his diary, they get his uh, discography, if you will, and then these people collect it and say, there's something valuable here. They are getting at something of life with God to cry out and find hope and to remember you're not alone and God is not done. And so then what they do is they say, when would David have written this? And they go back to sacred scripture all the stories of the kings and their trials and tribulations, and they say, you know what? I'm reading these seven verses, and I bet you where David was at was in this space of feeling deserted and afraid and in need of help and rescue from the pit and the prison and the cave. And there's this imaginative way in which we can now imagine with them and enter into this space of saying, where was David? What was he thinking? And some people's best guess is in 1 Samuel 24. You can write that down if you'd like on your handout. It tells this story in this horrible season of David's life where he felt deserted and afraid. Here's what happened. 
Israel's first king was a guy named Saul. Saul was a big, bad dude that looked the part, but he was kind of a mess, right? So, side note, there's hope for us messes that God can still use us. Second side note, if we're too much of a mess and we don't really like God, God ain't going to want to use us anymore in some certain sense because we've shut ourselves off from God and life with him. This is what happens to Saul. He gets rejected as God's king. So many of you, if you grew up in church or Sunday school or whatever, you might have heard of a guy named David. So David is this little guy who's this, the brother of many other brothers who looked the part and who wouldn't have been much of a mess. And so God tells this prophet Samuel, which is where this Old Testament book gets its name, and says, go to these dudes from Jesse. He got a bunch of kids, and I think one of them is going to be the king. And so they put brother after brother after brother after brother and says, no, 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 none of these guys are kings. Is there another one? He said, yeah, but it's little old David. He's with the sheep. He stinks right now. He needs to take a shower. He said, no, go get him. And then this amazing thing happens. David is anointed king. Now, there's a problem. Because Saul is still living and acting and living it up as king. It's hard, to, it's hard to kick out the king from the palace if you got all the things a king has. So David begins to kind of rub shoulders with Saul. And then when these big bad dudes, the Philistines, come and Goliath comes. Y'all heard of Goliath? Yes? So Goliath comes and Saul's like, I ain't going to fight Goliath. And David says, I will. This little old dude, David, goes and you know what happens next? He kills Goliath. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Dude, if somebody shoots a three-pointer like Steph Curry, we lose our minds in America. Someone kills the biggest, baddest, scariest dude in ancient Israel, that dude is going to be way bigger than LeBron or fill-in-the-blank celebrity you can have. They lost their ever-loving minds. So then David's popularity goes through the roof. So then all of a sudden, he's this king in waiting, but now thousands of people are saying, dude, David, David, David. So Saul, because he's a little bit of a mess and unstable, gets his spear when David's playing some songs and thinks everything's cool and he's riding high, and you know what Saul does? This is so crazy. This is our Bible, ladies and gentlemen. Saul throws a spear, and, and whoever wrote 1 Samuel says, to pin David against the wall. So then David says, that was weird, and he leaves. Saul kind of chills out. David, for some unknown reason, goes back and starts playing some music again for Saul. Don't do that like you did last time, boy, right? No, Saul is violently jealous, and so he takes a spear again, tries to pin the guy against the wall. Pin me once, shame on you. Try to pin me twice, I am out of there. And so this is what David does. He gets a few of his men, and he bolts, and he leaves. And so here's David that has, has, has friends within the castle. Here's David that has people shouting his name. Here's David that has everything going for him. God has said, you're the next king. And he's saying, wait. Now I've lost everyone I know and love. Now the king wants to kill me. Now the king is sending himself and about 3,000 other people to get me. And all the people that were chanting my name are nowhere to be found. And then I go to this place, and you can see chapter after chapter after chapter, he says, everywhere I go, guess what? They find me, and then i got to go to the next place. And so you begin to see if 1 Samuel, hear me as another sports thing, bear with me, if 1 Samuel is the play-by-play of what's going on in David's life, we get a glimpse into the inner dialogue as imagined by whoever put together the Psalms. When we read Psalm 142, you said, you know how David felt? 
1 Samuel doesn't really tell us. It gives us the play-by-play. Psalm 142 is the color commentary. It gives us a glimpse at the inner turmoil that's felt when, hear me, everything is in outer turmoil around him. David is literally in a cave, literally with other people, but internally he feels exhausted. He feels abandoned by God who anointed him and said, here's this great job. And what David's thinking is, God did this. Nope, just kidding. Are we starting to resonate here? You may not be pursued by physical enemies, but have you felt persecuted and pursued by other people in your life? Have you felt attacked? Have you felt like every time you enter back into that space and back into that relationship, you think this time will be different, and then they do some barb, some spear to try to pin you against the wall? What happens is you begin to feel afraid. What happens when you begin to feel afraid is you begin to remove yourselves from the situations that make you what? Afraid. So David finds himself literally afraid, moving away into these places of caves and hiding out. Because if fear drives you far enough, you're going to isolate. So David is now isolated. And even though he's with others, internally he's thinking, where is God? I'm alone. Where's all the people chanting my name? And it shows us and it awakens us to this idea of surely God is not done, right? Because we read 1 Samuel and we see month after month after month of David feeling exhausted, deserted, and afraid. If you have felt exhausted, deserted, and afraid, let's look and see what someone who felt that did. What did David do? Well, he lays it all out before God. We mentioned those crying out, pouring out, telling him his complaint and trouble. I want to tell you this. You have all the permission in the world to lay everything out before God. Some of you may have grown up into a church that says you got to pray this way, and God forbid if somebody asks you to pray in our neighborhood group or this, you got to say the right things and do the right things. Let me tell you who doesn't care so much is God. What God cares about, and we see throughout the scriptures when it's talking about prayer, is where's your heart orientation toward him? Do you pray believing that God can before you ask that he will? Do you have this heart orientation that says, God, I'm really scraping the bottom of the barrel here, but I, I, I've just got to get this out somewhere? Would you feel safe enough to do it in front of him? If you don't feel safe enough praying in front of people in this community, I hope you would at least see that we don't have our stuff together either, and God cares less about getting our words right. He cares more about a heart orientation that says, if someone's not listening, God, can you listen at least, please? I'm coming to you. The Psalms give us permission to lay it all out. God can take it, God can listen, he can hear your words and then extend mercy in a compassionate ear even when those around you don't. David's in a cave with a hundred of people who probably could not hear this because David was going to be the king and he had to be strong. David was the king and he had to fight people. David was the king and he shouldn't be afraid of Saul. If you don't feel vulnerable enough in front of your friends, practice with God. It gives you permission. You don't have it together. But do you have people in your life that you do vent to? Do you have people in your life that you can call and say this? If you don't, I would really encourage you to find someone here in our community 
because they're just as messed up as you are. But they might remind you that you're not alone and that God is not done. I remember a time when I was venting to one of my dear friends and I was just going on and on and on. If you've ever had lunch or coffee with me, you know I can have the tendency to go on and on and on. I try to listen first and ask a bunch of questions, but when, my, when I ask a bunch of questions, my wife tells me with some of her friends, it's like, dude, are you conducting an interview? Because I'm, I'm still learning, right? But I'm going on and on and on and on, and I tell him all the problems in the world, and then he says, that sounds really tough, and he's doing all the right things. He said, man, that must be hard. Mm, yeah, how'd you feel about that? Mm, mm, mm. So he let me get all my junk out, and then he said this, all right. But have you actually talked to God about it? And it sounds at this moment like one of those pat answers. But for me, it was this awakening that's like, oh yeah, this is what it feels like when I feel deserted and alone and persecuted. Because if pain narrows our focus, I feel like isolation and depression and sadness can really just cloud your focus. And everything just feels like a haze. And the little things that were joyful and good for you all of a sudden lose their luster and you really don't find yourself being happy. You really don't find yourself ready to get out of bed. And you just find yourself in this place where everything's just fuzzy and clouded and you can feel alone inside of a room. So what happens is, no, you don't want to talk to these people. Why should I talk to God? He reminded me, hey, dude, you can lay it all out before God. So I, I would recommend to you and encourage you, it is so okay to vent to God it is also okay to vent to others. But I've found in my experience the best people to vent to are the people who listen first. Kelly Moss, Amy told me in your room you've got this sign at school, and this blew my mind. I didn't have this in my notes, but I was just thinking about it. What does it say? Silent and listen. What does it say? Listen and silent are spelled with the same letters. Now, that's an inspirational teacher poster right there. Would we be people who listen first? The second thing, if you're finding someone or wanting to be someone, someone can vent to, I think try to be careful of the pat answers. The person I spoke to who was in a cave for a good season of her life said, you know what, like, I loved these people that were with me and I could see what they were trying to do, but when they said, hey, God had a reason for this, like hell that you're living in, God is in this, and he gave you this, and he gave you all this, and God is the reason you have this and that. Like, that didn't help. And then they say, well, look, God must be preparing you for something awesome, which is why your life has been such a, just a crummy storm for months. Man, God must really want to prepare you for something. I think there's shades of truth in some of that. I think there's a lot of mystery we're just not aware of, but, but to hear it is tough. And I remember when I think about pat answers, a professor of mine, when he was a pastor early on, he shares this story so that I wouldn't have to fall into the same bear trap. And he says, I went to my first funeral and I sat down with a woman who had just lost her husband unexpectedly and she was just beside herself. So everybody after the wake clears out, he sits down with her and he does what pastors like to do. Talk first and give pat answers. He put his hand on her back and he said this, well, just know that he's in a better place. And then she wipes her tears away, she composes herself, and she looks at him and says, I know that, Pastor, but I would really like for him to be at my dinner table when I get home. Would we be people who listen first to the, each other, 
but also listen to God because sometimes presence is better than platitudes. What he learned and what we should learn when we're dealing with people who are in this season is to just be with someone and then when they allow us and you can see that opportunity to speak goodness and truth to remind them they're not alone and God's not done, would we do so in a way that's wise and gracious and perhaps thirdly gets them unstuck? When my friend said, did you talk to God about it? It got me unstuck and it got me beyond myself and I was able to cry out to God. And this is what David did. You know what he did when he cried out to God? If you look back at that story in 1 Samuel, there's this really amazing situation. Saul tried to kill David twice before David went on the lamb. But then David, when he was hiding, this is unbelievable. This is like some kind of wild Hollywood movie. When Saul would get close to him, there would be like these dramatic reasons why Saul wouldn't get to him, which is, hold on to that. But there was these two instances where David and his men were like deep in the cave, and then Saul and his men would go to the mouth of the cave. And this is also in our Bibles. Saul went in to relieve himself. And because Saul was a king, he had all these robes, and he goes into the mouth of the cave, the cave where David and his people are, and he, shall we say, squats down, and David is able to sneak up to him. And the advice that David got from his friends was, dude, this is your opportunity, kill him. And in the Old Testament, where there's a lot of killing, I believe David was quiet enough to hear the true voice of God that says, don't. And then David, in a supreme act of trust that says, okay, I'm not, so God, you're going to have to help me out of this prison as we read in the psalm. In a supreme act of trust, what David does is not kill him, but take his robe, just a little corner of it. Then Saul goes and does his thing, and then David from a safe distance says, hey, king, God told me not to raise my hand against you because you're still the Lord's vessel in some way. And so please see this as a way of I could, but I didn't. Would you show me grace? And Saul did and laid off for a little bit until it happened again. So this is what's so powerful. I believe and I want to imagine that David had silented himself enough to not listen to the bad advice of some of his friends that said, go and do this and force God's hand. He rather showed an expression of trust and said, I heard the voice of the Lord and it said, don't do it. Because when I feel deserted and afraid, I want to take matters into my own hand. But see, the problem is David will admit later, he says, listen, I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those pursuing me. And he wanted to say, God, you've given me an opportunity. Why can't I take it? Because sometimes God has better things in store that forms in us a trust that can't be formed when we take everything on ourselves. Here's what I mean. He says later, save me, they're too strong for me. Set me free from prison. You know what happens when we listen to the voice of God, when we sit down quiet enough and we, we listen, we do two things. We learn to trust him and then we learn to see his hand. 
And we then, once we learn to trust him and say things like, give me today my daily bread, and we actually recognize when we receive it, we begin to say, maybe I should do this again. Lord, give me today my daily bread. And then we get it again. Jesus knows what he was doing when he told us to pray for something as ordinary as life and breath and food and sustenance. And then he says in the Sermon on the Mount, then you're going to begin to learn that life is more than the clothes you wear and the food you eat, but you've got to keep asking, you've got to keep asking, you've got to keep listening. And I think when we listen and we ask and we ask, God is delighted in our asking because when we finally realize that we're dependent on him from daily bread, when we finally realize, hear me, when we're dependent on him from saving us from the pit, saving from people who are too strong for us, when we finally realize that, we go beyond ourselves and say, I can't do it alone. You say, I've hit rock bottom, so God, I think only you can lift me. You say, God, I'm not strong enough, so only you are strong enough to get me out of this. He says, I'm stuck in prison and only you can save me. I have a quote in there about relationships. I don't think I'm going to get to that chunk. But I was so blown away by this Franciscan priest and spiritual writer that says that he believes that salvation is the capacity and the willingness and the commitment to stay in relationship. David started by crying out to God, and little by little, God is going to be revealing to him little steps. And then ultimately, he's going to learn to trust God. And he's going to see that relationships that were once the source of fear become the source of his strength. When we're depressed and we're afraid, and when we sound like David in verse 4, look around me, nobody's here. Look around me, nobody cares. Because that season clouds us, we don't see the people around us. So when you feel verse four, when you feel like David, do verse five. I cry to you, Lord, and I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Did you see where he says, you are my refuge? Quick, look on your handout where else he says the word refuge. Verse four, he says, I have no refuge. When you feel like you have no refuge in verse four, do verse five and cry out to the Lord and be reminded that God is your refuge. The person I spoke to this week said, you know what? When no one else was around me, I was forced to get into a position where I had sought God and I found a comfort so deep within me from the Holy Spirit that was so much better than any of the other comforts that other people were giving me. But it was that comfort that drove me to begin to trust God and to come out of the cave and out into the light, and then I began to trust others. And she said, but it took time. I think for David, it took a lot of time. Because David still saw the path in verse three where there's snare around me, but he said, but at least, God, I believe you're walking with me. Do you know that we have a shepherd who doesn't walk us around the valley of the shadow? Where does he walk us? Through the valley of the shadow. But know this, our shepherd is not afraid of the dark. When we're afraid of the dark and we run to the cave, I believe our shepherd goes into the cave with us. And this is a profound and deep truth that you have to experientially know when you've hit rock bottom and only he can lift you. 
When you find yourself not strong enough, you've got to experience the strength that comes deep within from the Holy Spirit groaning within you. But here's the problem when we're deserted, depressed, and afraid. We want to fill everybody with our crisis, and we want to distract ourselves with busyness because you know what else happens? We want to numb out and disengage. I'll never forget, and I've said this before, well, guess what? I'm going to say it again. A new Christian who joined our community a while back, is no longer here, said something that was so beautiful and profound, you know, because it was so real. And he said, y'all keep talking about hearing God. I have no idea how to hear God. And I said, dude, guess what? We don't really either. We just kind of intuit it. We just kind of soak in the scripture and we try to listen carefully to those things that give life and meaning and direction from the mouths of others. And, and we try to listen quiet. And he goes, well, dude, wait, wait, wait. But, but, but can you pray and ask God to turn up the volume in those things you're talking about? And he said, better, better yet, Ask God to give me subtitles. Yeah, I need subtitles. I need God's subtitles. And then in our community, someone said, I, I think it's less about God turning himself up, and it's more about us turning our lives down. Even in the caves, even in the darkness, God wants us to turn our lives down to see that we are his, he is with us, he will not leave us. There's a common misquotation and a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'll tell you the misquotation. God won't give us more than we can handle. Have you heard this or said this? It's okay, I've said it and heard it too. I heard it last night. I'm serious, I heard it last night. I said, oh, I'm definitely gonna say that in the sermon tomorrow. God won't give us more than we can handle. What 1 Corinthians 10, 13 actually says is this. No temptation will overcome you. What he means is no temptation to sin and to get off the path will, will, will be too strong for you. The temptation, not circumstance. You hear me? Because the misinterpretation, the misquotation is God won't give me more than I can handle. He won't push me down the expert ski slope when he knows that all I need to do is the bunny slope. You with me? No, no, no. There's no temptation that is unfamiliar to God and is... Too much for you. Temptation. And God will always give you a means of escape. I believe God does, and the world does, bring things to our path that are too much for us to handle. Because when we get sent down the expert slope, we realize that we need a guide to walk with us. And God loves it when we ask. He loves it when we cry out. He loves it when we see that we need him, not because he wants to show us or prove us, but he loves to wrap us up and form us into the person he's created us to be if we would just let go and trust him. More and more I'm convinced of this, that would we be willing to cry out to stay in relationship with him and others even when it's difficult. But the end of the psalm and the end of our talk is this confident undercurrent expectation What changed in David's life by verse 7? I will tell you, peace. But I bet David was still in the cave. He was still on the run. He ain't going to get any relief till 1 Samuel chapter 26. And we were in chapter 24. Nothing changed in David's circumstance. What changed was David's perspective. And you see this movement from isolation to community. 
then you're going to bring me out. I'm confident you're going to bring me out. And then I'm going to see all these other people and I'm going to get to tell them how good you are to me. You see this move from isolation to community. This move from desperation to praise. Then you see this move. And it's because it's his perspective. And he's so convinced now experientially that yes, God is my refuge. And the last thing you see is he's my portion in the land of the living, verse five. I didn't talk about portion, but what I wanted to say to you is this. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses nine, there was this group of people who didn't get a land tract like all the other tribes. But there's this beautiful thing hidden in this chunk of law. And it says that Levi, you won't get a portion because the Lord is your portion. And I believe in seasons of desertion and fear is when God wants to say, I'm your portion, I'm enough. Would you trust me? Would you cry out? Would you be vulnerable with me? Will you see that I'm good? Will you learn to trust me? Will you see this? And you can't see it in the circumstance, but give it enough time and enough crying out, and I believe at the end of it, you'll be able to, like David, say, then I'm gonna go and tell everybody about it, and they're gonna see that God was good to me, not bad to me. And I'll close with this. Last Saturday, we went to dinner with Aaron and Amanda Stone and the boys, and we went with Kara and Kelly, and we went with Becky and Miguel Maimi, who are new to the church. Sorry, I'm gonna talk about you for a second. The Stones know I'm gonna talk about them. Y'all didn't, but I'm going to, because this is my closer, okay? They're new to our community, and they've just jumped in. He's serving, he's doing all this, and so they're getting to know people. Side note, it was so hilarious. Becky, I've got to say this because it made me laugh for a week. She said, Amanda, I'm so glad to be here at dinner with you. I've got to tell you, before I knew your name, when we started visiting this church, around the house, I referred to you as Snow White. (laughs) So she was like, I'm so glad to sit down with you and know that your name is Amanda, but I think I'll still call you Snow White privately. But they asked about their story. And then we sat down for an hour because we all had to jump in and tell the story of the cave of 2015 for Aaron and Amanda Stone. And he shared the story of what it did for him. And in 2015, we were a community and a church learning how to cry out to God. Learning and failing and trying again, and God was gracious. We were a community trying to put back the lie that God has abandoned her, that God might abandon Wendell. And we had to learn to cry out and trust God, and you know what God did each step of the way when they were at their wits end, when they were crying out every week, they said this then and they say it now. There was just enough. There was just a little thing where we said God is still with us and we're not alone and he's not done. And they're telling this story and we're laughing and we're crying and we're talking about all this. And we said, man, what a cave of a year 2015 was, but now you're in the light and you get to share with everyone, God is not done and we weren't alone. And they're sitting there talking about us, us broken and messed up people that said, and they were here and they did this and they were that and they were praying and they were loving and they were this and they were that. And then you begin to see that when it feels so good in those moments to be isolated, would you cry out to God and would you take one step toward him and then you will see this, a movement toward God is always eventually a movement toward others. 
Because God says, I'm here in relationship with you, but I want you to see the hands and feet of relationship with others. The cave is where the enemy wants to keep you because the cave becomes too dark and too comfortable and you begin to lose the light. But a move toward God is a move toward others. Would we cry out to God? Would we ask him for what we need? And then would we learn to trust that sometime, someday, he will get us through and then we go and tell others that God really is who he says he is and God really will do what he says he'll do. That's what I hope the psalm speaks to us. It's what it's spoken to me and I pray that we would be a community that never stops reminding each other that you are not alone and God is not done. Let's pray. Father, what can we say but thank you and we love you, and we want to be swept up more and more into life with you. We don't just want to hear this stuff. We don't want to just read this stuff. We want to hear it and read it and live it and experience it. This week, I am more and more convinced that Father, Son, and Spirit is dynamically, actively at work in a mysterious and uncontrollable way that is so much bigger than we could ever imagine. So would you right now, in our midst, Holy Spirit, when their own hearts condemn them, would you speak truth? Because God, who is greater than their hearts, will restore them. Would you restore people in our midst? Would you hear us when we cry? And then God, would they hear you speaking in those delicate and soft and loving and light-filled ways to cast out the darkness and the false narratives and the lies from the enemy that, that say they're not good enough and they are alone and nobody is around. Would they be able to see the light of your face and then see the faces of others that want to come alongside them and say, no, 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 here's who you are. You are a beloved daughter of God. I don't care what he said. Here's who you are. You are one in whom Christ dwells. The shepherd walks with you, and you're afraid of the dark. He is not. Would you run and lean to him? Because he has a rod and a staff that will lead you, guide you, and protect you. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and the powers making a wasteland of your good creation. But we believe that only you can renew all things and you are doing so now in our midst. So Jesus, the one who told us to pray for things as ordinary as bread, you also told us to pray for something as inconceivable and incomprehensible as the very kingdom of God come in this earth. Would you come right now into our hearts, our streets, our families, our lives? We have tried and failed, tried and failed. Would you bring us liberation out of the prison of greed, out of the prison of hatred, out of the prison of bitterness and addiction and lust and all of the things that want to keep us captive? Would you deliver us in the strong name of Jesus Christ? Would the Holy Spirit move in these moments as we take the body, as we take the blood, and remember that greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. For the enemy would love nothing more than to keep us in the caves. Would you drag us out in your power? For we have nothing to do but cry out. Would you hear the cries of your beloved children? Amen.
First Theologians, chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and our Father at the, becoming, or the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. <laughs> 